right, well, I want to begin this morning by asking a question to the children here. Um, kids, I have lost track. I need your help. How many days away are we until Christmas Day? Okay. One? One? Ten? I think we might need more consensus than that. I think, what's today? What, what's December 24th? Is that right? So Christmas is tomorrow. It's tomorrow, one day away. Well, that's probably not a surprise to most of us here today. We've been counting down the days till Christmas as soon as December 1st arrives. Many of us have an advent calendar that we follow. Some start even earlier, Thanksgiving, Halloween, Christmas in July. You know, we just start counting down. And, and throughout our month of waiting or months of waiting for Christmas Day to arrive, you know, there are two things that we generally all find ourselves doing as we wait, we are celebrating and we are preparing. We're celebrating, we're preparing. We fill our calendars with celebrations, Christmas gatherings and Christmas services and Christmas plays. And then around all the celebration, we use the margins of our schedule for all of our preparations, going grocery shopping, getting Christmas gifts ready, cleaning the house, packing for a trip, etc., etc. And all of it, our celebrations and all our preparations they're all revolving around the fact that we know that December 25th is Christmas Day, and it is coming soon, and we are counting down the days. Well, this morning we're going to think about another day that the Bible tells us is coming soon. It's not a day that we can mark on our calendars, though some have tried, but it is a day that calls for a continual stream of celebration and preparation. It's what Scripture calls the day of of the Lord. And you can open your Bibles to Malachi chapter 4, where we read about this day. Malachi is God's loving rebuke to his people Israel, who have returned from exile, and they've also returned to their former sins. And one of the main themes that we've seen so far in this book is that the people of Israel have stopped obeying God's commandments because they've stopped believing that God will bless the righteous. In their day to day experience, it's the wicked who are prosperous and the righteous who suffer and struggle. What's the point of obeying God if it only makes life harder and more difficult and if the evil seem to do whatever they want with no consequences? What's the point of obeying God? And so they've stopped. Because they've stopped believing that God will bless their obedience, they've stopped living according to his commandments. Malachi is God's rebuke to his people for these hard attitudes and these life decisions they're making. And so today we come to the final words of this book, the final words of the Old Testament itself. And Malachi's message and the Lord's message to disobedient and unbelieving Israel is simple. The day of the Lord is coming, and it will be a day of blessing if you are prepared. That's the Lord's message to his disobedient people who aren't believing that he will bless them if they follow him. He's saying the day of the Lord is coming, and it will be a day of blessing if you are prepared. It will be a day of blessing if you are ready when it comes. Malachi chapter 4, reading verses 1 through 6, the final words of the Old Testament. For behold, the day is coming, burning like an oven, when all the arrogant and all evildoers will be stubble. The day that is coming shall set them ablaze, says the Lord of hosts, so that it will leave them neither root nor branch. But for you who fear my name, the sun of righteousness shall rise with healing in its wings. You shall go out leaping like calves from the stall, 
and you shall tread down the wicked, for they will be ashes under the soles of your feet on the day when I act, says the Lord of hosts. Remember the law of my servant Moses, the statutes and rules that I commanded him at Horeb for all Israel. Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes, and he will turn the hearts of fathers to their children and the hearts of children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the land with a decree of utter destruction. So here we have the closing words of the Old Testament. They're not words of resolution. They're not words that tie everything up in a neat bow, but they're words of expectation. They're words of anticipation. They're words that tell us the day of the Lord is coming. And this morning we want to see three things about that day. Three things that we need to understand about the day of the Lord that is coming. First, we see the proclamation of the day. In verses 1 through 3, the proclamation of the day. And I just want to answer the question first this morning, what is the day of the Lord? When we talk about the day of the Lord, what are we speaking about? Malachi tells us four things about this day as he proclaims it to Israel. First thing, maybe goes without saying, but we need to say it, it's future. It's a future day. Two times in verse 1, we see the phrase, the day is coming. The day that is coming. According to Malachi, the day of the Lord is an actual day in the future, that will one day arrive, and it will be today. As we rip the pages off our calendar, day after day, one day it will be the day of the Lord. That future day is coming. And while we might think again, that this goes without saying, consider how different this is from the narrative of the secular culture that we all live in. You know, it's odd that our secular culture holds to a strict naturalism, but it still waves the flag of progress. On the one hand, the culture proclaims that everything that exists is nothing, but the product of billions of years of chance and evolution with no designer behind any of it, no plan for any of it. It's all just random chance, meaningless naturalism. According to naturalism, it's all, it's all just going to burn up in the end. And yet, even though that's what the culture holds, the culture also speaks about being on the wrong side of history and making progress toward the way things ought to be. Well, why is that? Where does that narrative come from? It comes from the fact that deep down we all have a sense of the ultimacy of life in this world. We all have a sense that our lives do matter. We all have a sense that history is indeed moving toward a conclusion. We all know these things. We sense these things. And scripture tells us why. Because there is a future day coming. The God who made us is also the God who planned history. And he will bring it to the conclusion he has planned. The day of the Lord is that future day that we all know is coming deep down. The day of the Lord is that day that God has set for the culmination of human history. And every passing day on our calendar brings us closer to that coming day. The day of the Lord is future. The day of the Lord is also personal. It's personal. Notice what the Lord says at the end of verse 3. On the day when I act. The day when I act. If you skip down to the end of verse 6, you can see it as well. He says, lest I come and strike the land. Lest I come. God is going to act. God is going to come. Now there's a sense in which the Bible presents God as being continually involved in his creation. He's not like the God of the deists who winds up creation like a clock and then lets it run its course. No, God is always involved, always acting, always working. Every day of history is a day when God is acting but on the day of the Lord, his acting will be of a different kind. It, it's kind of like when Michael Jordan was president of basketball operations for the Wizards. And uh, 
not a memorable time in his career. But for about a year, the Wizards were his team in the sense that he drafted the players, he put the roster together, he, he made all the basketball decisions for the franchise. But at one point, he just said, the Wizards, th these guys are so bad at basketball that finally MJ decided to come out of retirement, put on the number 23 jersey, and actually put himself back in the game. He decided that he had to personally intervene to, to actually be on the court himself. And this is what the Lord's going to do on that day. When he comes, he will come and he will act. He will enter in to his creation and he will act in a way that is different than all his acting has ever been before. He will personally intervene from within creation. On that future day, God himself, the creator, will enter creation and personally intervene. What will God do on that future day where he personally acts? We see this phrase in verse 5, the great and awesome day of the Lord. Or, or you might say the, the wonderful and dreadful day, the, the awesome and dreadful day. First, when that day comes, it's going to be a dreadful day for all who have disobeyed his commands. It's future, it's personal, it's dreadful. Look at how Malachi describes the day in verse 1. For behold, the day is coming, burning like an oven, when all the arrogant and all evildoers will be stubble. The day that is coming shall set them ablaze, says the Lord of hosts, so that it will leave them neither root nor branch. And so here this day that God comes and he acts is pictured as a fiery oven that totally consumes the arrogant and the evildoers. It's pictured like a fire that destroys the wicked, like a forest fire destroys the forest. And while we understand that in a forest fire it will eventually grow back when it's done, the day of the Lord is different. It will leave them neither root nor branch. It burns all the way down to the root the destruction will be total and it will be irreversible. Now it's important as we think about that destruction that we clarify the picture from what it's intending to describe. It would be easy to conclude total destruction, irreversible destruction, that, that what God is saying is that the wicked will just cease to exist. That they will just be no more. But that's not what scripture teaches about that day of judgment. We read in the book of Matthew about the judgment of eternal fire, a fire that continues to burn without end. In other words, the day of the Lord is dreadful, not only because it brings total destruction and irreversible destruction, but it brings never-ending destruction. It's a kind of death, a kind of destruction, a kind of judgment that continues forever and ever and ever. The day of the Lord brings this dreadful judgment about, and it's also important that we clarify who will be judged. When we read the words wicked or evildoers, it's tempting for us to conclude that this is talking about really bad people. You might be able to fill in who that is in your mind, but it's not talking about us, right? This is the wicked. This is evildoers. This is those who deserve judgment. However, if we think to ourselves that we're not included in those categories of wicked and evildoers because we're viewing those things only from a human perspective and not from God's perspective, this is why we need to hear that first term as well, the arrogant. It's tempting for us to think, uh, wicked, that's not me, evildoer, that's not me, but, but the arrogant, well, we all need to say, that's, yeah, that's me. Those who are proud, those who have lifted themselves up in their hearts, if we're honest with ourselves, we have to say that this is us. We all place ourselves at the center of our own universe and pursue our own glory instead of the glory of God. We are the arrogant which means that the day of the Lord will be a dreadful day for us as well. We are the objects of that judgment in verse 1. 
Except for one thing, is that verses 2 and 3 tell us there's another group of people. While the day of the Lord will be dreadful for some, it will be wonderful for others. It's future, it's personal, it's dreadful, but it will also be wonderful for others. Look at verses 2 and 3. But for you who fear my name, the Son of Righteousness shall rise with healing in its wings. You shall go out leaping like calves from the stall. You shall tread down the wicked, for they will be ashes under the soles of your feet on the day when I act, says the Lord of hosts. While the wicked ought to hear this passage and fear the day of the Lord, those who fear the Lord have nothing to be afraid of when he comes. Well, who are those who fear the Lord? We were introduced to them last week after God's final rebuke of his people in Malachi 3. We read this in verse 16. Then those who feared the Lord spoke with one another, and the Lord paid attention and heard them. And what we saw last week is that those who feared the Lord weren't the righteous who had never sinned. They were the repentant. Those who feared the Lord weren't perfect people. They were sinful people who confessed their sins when God showed them their sins and they turned back to God in repentance. That's who God's speaking to. You who have, you have acknowledged your sins and have repented of your sins and turned back to me. You are those who fear my name. And now we see that for those who fear the Lord, the day of the Lord is a day that they can look forward to with great eagerness and great anticipation. This is a day that we want to see, a day that we welcome its arrival. Look at how this day is described. Though right now God's people experience all the brokenness of a sin-cursed world, the day of the Lord will be a day of healing. The sun of righteousness will rise with healing in its wings. Everything that's wrong will be right. Just like a sunrise comes up and sheds light and warmth, When there was once a dark and cold night, so on the day of the Lord, God's righteousness will spread over all the earth and will heal everything that is currently broken by sin. Those who fear the Lord will live in a healed world on that day. It will bring healing. It will bring freedom. You shall go out leaping like calves from the stall. Now, some of you have actually seen this yourself with your own calves. I've never seen it, but you can find it on YouTube to, to just look at calves leaping from the stall. And, and, and it's crazy because you just picture a cow just standing there, right? That's what cows do. They just stand there, and they eat, and they lay down, and they stand there some more. But calves from the stall, they don't just stand there. They, they jump around like they're dogs or something. They, they, they're, they're prancing around. They're, they're frolicking around their territory, they're not constrained anymore. They've been cooped up for months at a time during the winter. Now they're free. And as joyful as a cow can be, that calf is joyful. And God says, this is what the day of the Lord will be like for you. You're, you've been living under the, the constraints and bondage of your sin in this sin-broken world and death and sickness and suffering. But it's going to be a, a day of absolute freedom. And you're going to frolic like calves at the end of a long winter. It'll be a joy-producing freedom on the day when God acts. Healing, freedom, and victory. You shall tread down the wicked, for they will be ashes under the soles of your feet. When God acts on that day, those who fear the Lord will experience the reversal that they've been waiting for. Right now, the wicked are prostrates. You will tread down the wicked. They will be defeated, and God's people will be victorious. God will crush his enemies And his people will revel in his victory. God will act. God will judge. And his people will experience the victory. From that day on, there will be utter safety and blessing from every evil scheme and every evil plot that has been formed against God's people. So this is the day of the Lord. It's 
future. It is personal, it is dreadful, and it is wonderful. It is the coming day when God himself acts as judge to judge the wicked and to save his people. And this is what God proclaims to his people and to us through the prophet Malachi. And before we move forward, we need to ask two questions about what we just heard. First, this morning, do you believe that this day is actually coming? Do you believe what we just read in Malachi chapter 4? We've already said that everyone has a sense that history is moving toward a conclusion. Everyone has a sense that things are moving somewhere. But do you believe that this is the conclusion that we are heading toward? Do you believe that history is moving toward the day of the Lord? Do you believe that the God who created you is going to personally act in history and that he will either judge you or save you on that day. If you don't believe that in your heart, then I pray and hope you will keep listening this morning because there is good reason to believe that what we just heard is true. It's all very true. If you do believe, then here's the second question to ask yourself. Are you ready for this day? If you believe this, are you ready for this day to arrive? Just as parents don't fail to prepare for Christmas morning, just as a bride and groom don't fail to prepare for their wedding day, we must not fail to be prepared for the day of the Lord. And this brings us to the second thing we need to see this morning, the preparation for the day. The preparation for the day. How do you prepare for the day of the Lord? God says by looking to the past. By looking to the past. He tells Israel in verse 4, Remember the law of my servant Moses, the statutes and rules that I commanded him at Horeb for all Israel. God calls Israel to prepare for the future by remembering the past. He calls them to prepare for the day of his coming by remembering the law of Moses. This remembering that God is calling his people to is not merely just think about the law, but it's think about it with the intent of applying it. And when it comes to remembering the law, there's so much more to remember than simply the commands themselves. To remember the law means to remember who gave the law, my servant Moses. It's to remember where the law was given, at Horeb, at Mount Sinai, on the other side of the Red Sea. It's to remember what had just occurred for all Israel. God had delivered them out of slavery to Egypt. One commentator puts it this way, to remember the law is an exhortation to act upon the knowledge of Yahweh's deeds in, his, in history. It's an exhortation to act upon the knowledge of Yahweh's deeds in history. Now, I think sometimes it's easy for us, we're reading the Old Testament, to just picture it all as taking place in a very short amount of time, maybe just a few generations from beginning to end, but that's not what the Old Testament is like. Do you realize that at this point in Israel's history, it has been over a thousand years since the Exodus? Since the law was given that day on Mount Sinai, over 40 generations have come and gone. Moses has come and gone. Joshua has come and gone. The judges have come and gone. The kings have come and gone. Israel has been to Babylon and back again. A lot of time has passed. But unless Israel can look back and remember the law given through Moses at Sinai, unless they can remember what God did for them all those centuries ago, unless they can make that story their story again and live according to it, they will never be prepared for that future day of God's coming. And here's why. It's because God's past deliverance testifies to his future deliverance. God's past deliverance brings hope in his future deliverance. It brings hope that his future deliverance will come just as it came in the past. And that hope brings present day faithfulness to God's commands. Remembering past deliverance 
brings hope in God's future deliverance, and that hope brings present-day faithfulness. By remembering the events of the Exodus, how God acted on their behalf to judge their enemies and set them free, Israel's hope for that future deliverance grows, and that hope produces obedience to God's commands in their waiting. Remembering their past reminds Israel that God has done this before, and God will do this again. And if that's the case, then obedience to him is worth it. This is how Israel needs to prepare for the day of the Lord. They need to remember the past. But there's a problem. It's what we all have. that You might call it spiritual amnesia. Spiritual amnesia. We are prone to forget. We fail to remember. And as soon as we begin forgetting what God has done for us, we begin doubting his promises to us, and we begin living our own way again. When it comes to being prepared for the day of the Lord, we, we are like children who just aren't capable of getting ourselves ready. We need help. If we're going to be prepared for the day, we need help. And God in his grace promises that he will provide the help we need. We are not only called to be prepared, God says, I will prepare you for that day. Look at what God says he will do in verses 5 and 6. Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. And he will turn the hearts of fathers to their children and the hearts of children to their fathers lest I come and strike the land with a decree of utter destruction. You see, God knows that if he leaves Israel alone in their preparations for the day of his coming, then on that day no one will be saved. If their preparations are left to themselves, then he will have to come and strike the land with a decree of utter destruction. No one will be ready. If their preparedness for the day rests on their remembering and their faithfulness, then when he comes, no one will be ready for that day and all will be judged. And so he makes a promise that before that day comes, he's going to send an old prophet back to Israel again. Elijah is going to appear. Now we know Elijah best from his showdown with the prophets of Baal at Mount Carmel. When all of Israel had turned away from Yahweh to worship the false god Baal, Elijah set up a challenge for all to see, to see which god would send fire from heaven on the sacrificial altars they had made. Well, before all Israel, Baal utterly failed to deliver for his prophets, and then Elijah, in order to more clearly demonstrate God's power, had his altar to Yahweh soaked with water three times over, and then he prayed this, Answer me, O Lord, answer me, that this people may know that you, O Lord, are God, and that you have turned their hearts back. And here's what happened next. Then the fire of the Lord fell and consumed the burnt offering, and the wood, and the stones, and the dust, and licked up the water that was in the trench. And when all the people saw it, they fell on their faces and said, The Lord, he is God. The Lord, he is God. This, this is Elijah. This was his ministry. This is who God says he would send back to Israel before the day the Lord arrived. Just as the Lord used Elijah to turn Israel's hearts back to faithfulness many years before, the Lord says Elijah will once again have a ministry of turning Israel's hearts. He will turn the hearts of fathers to their children and the hearts of children to their fathers. Through Elijah's ministry, Israel is going to remember the Lord, and Israel is going to repent of their sins, and they're going to reconcile with each other. In other words, through Elijah's ministry, God is going to prepare his people for his coming. And this is the promise that concludes the Old Testament. 400 years later, we see the fulfillment of this promise begin to be set in motion as the angel Gabriel appears to a man named Zechariah in the Holy of Holies. Turn with me now to the Gospel of Luke, chapter 1. We'll begin reading in verse 8. 
Luke chapter 1. Now while Zechariah was serving as priest before God, when his division was on duty, according to the custom of the priesthood, he was chosen by lot to enter the temple of the Lord and burn incense. And the whole multitude of the people were praying outside of the hour of incense, and there appeared to him an angel of the Lord standing on the right side of the altar of incense. And Zechariah was troubled when he saw him, and fear fell upon him. But the angel said to him, Do not be afraid, Zechariah, for your prayer has been heard, and your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you shall call his name John. And you will have joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth, for he will be great before the Lord. And he must not drink wine or strong drink, and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit, even from his mother's womb. And he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God. And he will go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. Notice the way that the angel Gabriel describes this son to Zechariah. He will come in the spirit and power of Elijah. He will turn Israel to the Lord. He will turn the hearts of fathers to their children. He will prepare the people for the Lord. Who is John? His identity is unmistakable, isn't it? This is the fulfillment of the Elijah promise. This is the one that the Lord sends to prepare the people for the Lord by calling them to repentance. So tell me then, if Elijah has come and John the Baptist, then according to Malachi, what happens next? The day of the Lord. The great and awesome day of the Lord comes right after Elijah comes. And it did come. It has come. Just not in the way that Israel anticipated. And this brings us to the final thing we need to understand about the day of the Lord this morning. The prolonging of the day. The prolonging of the day. Now I want you to imagine with me that you're hiking and you set your eyes on a great mountain peak in the distance as your goal. And you're hiking, as you're, as you're drawing closer, you begin to realize that it's not just a singular peak that you thought you saw, but there's actually a second peak beyond the first peak. This is what the day of the Lord is like. From the perspective of Israel and Malachi's day, they were anticipating a singular day of judgment and salvation. One day where the wicked were judged and the righteous were saved. But when the events begin to actually unfold, you get closer to them, you realize that this day of the Lord's coming actually has two points of reference with many years in between. We realize that the day of the Lord has come, and at the same time, the day of the Lord has not yet been completed. It continues. The day of the Lord has been prolonged. In John the Baptist, the Lord fulfilled his promise to send Elijah to prepare the people for his coming. But, but then look at how the Lord arrives in Luke chapter 2. We read it earlier, while they were there, the time came for her to give birth. And she gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling cloths and laid him in a manger because there was no place for them in the inn. And in the same region, there were shepherds out in the field keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them and the glory of the Lord shone around them and they were filled with great fear. And the angel said to them, fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. 
when the Lord told the people through Malachi that he would come, nobody expected it to be like this. In Malachi, the Lord is the Lord of hosts. He is the God of angel armies. Well, the Lord of hosts came with exuberant praise from those hosts of angels. But who were they praising? Who were they extolling? They were extolling a poor baby lying in an animal's manger. This is the personal coming of the Lord. This is how he enters in. This is how he intervenes. He didn't come as the Lord of hosts. He came as a humble, poor infant. Why did he come like this? The Lord said that when he came, it would be a day of judgment and salvation. But the mystery of his coming is that he came not to judge, but to be judged. He came not to consume, but to be consumed. His humble birth was the beginning of his servant life and then his sacrificial death. He was born to one day die on a cross. It is a day of judgment and salvation, but it's judgment on him so that sinners can be saved. It's his death that brings us the salvation that God promised to those who fear him. The Lord told the people through Malachi that that day the Son of Righteousness would arise with healing in its wings. Well, on the third day after he died, the death that we deserve, Jesus Christ the righteous rose from the dead, and through his resurrection, we already begin to experience that healing and that freedom and that victory that God promised. These things are already happening. The Lord has come to us. The Lord has taken the judgment for us, and now he heals us from our brokenness and sin. He sets us free from the penalty of our sin. He gives us victory over the power of sin in our lives. You see, this is the mystery of the day of the Lord, is that the Lord came with salvation first, and now this day has been prolonged until we arrive at that second peak. And between those two comings, as Paul says later in 2 Corinthians 6, Behold, now is the favorable time, now is the day of salvation. The day's been prolonged so that all who repent of their sins today may experience the fullness of salvation when he comes again. And listen, church, he will come again. His resurrection from the dead assures us that that final day will arrive. That day is coming. It will be personal, and it will be dreadful, and it will be wonderful, just as God told the people of Malachi. It's just now we know it, not only as the day of the Lord, but as the day of Christ. And until that day comes, church, there are two things that we must continue to do. We must prepare for the day. We must prepare for the day, just as the Lord called Israel to remember his redemption through Moses, so the Lord calls us to remember his redemption through Jesus and through the cross. Israel's remembrance of their past brought hope for their future and faithfulness in the present. So when we remember the death of Jesus and the resurrection of Jesus, it assures us that he will come again, and it compels us to live for his glory while we wait. Church, let us always be prepared for the day of Christ. Let us always remember what he has done for us and put our hope in what he will do for us and live lives of repentance and faith until he comes. We must prepare for the day, and second, we must proclaim the day. Again, just as the Lord sent Elijah to prepare the people for his coming by calling them to repentance, so now Jesus has sent us into the world to proclaim that he is coming again and to call all people to turn away from their sins and to turn their hearts back to him. Church, this is our mission until Jesus comes again. 
like Malachi did 400 years before Christ's coming, like John did when Christ came, like the apostles did after Christ ascended. So now we also obey God's call. We seek to turn the hearts of those who are lost back to him. We bear the same message of the angel armies in Bethlehem. We bring good news of great joy for all people. We continue that ministry today. And so church, hear this good news of great joy this morning. The day of the Lord has come. And today is the day of salvation. The Lord himself has taken on flesh. He's borne the judgment we deserve. And so we can repent of our sins this morning, confess your arrogance, confess your wickedness, and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. He will heal you of your brokenness. He will set you free from your guilt. He will give you victory over your sin. The day of the Lord has come, and it is a day of salvation for all who repent and fear his name. The day of the Lord is coming. Jesus will come again, not to deal with sin, but to save all who are eagerly waiting for him. And on that day, we will be completely healed. We will be fully freed. We will be forever victorious. On that day, we will be like him, for we will see him as he is. That day is our blessed hope, church. So let's always be prepared for his arrival, and let's continue to proclaim the day of the Lord until he comes. Father, we thank you so much for sending your son, Jesus Christ, not to condemn the world, so that the world might be saved through him. We praise you that though we are wicked and arrogant and deserve to be judged for our sins, that you are a God of grace and love, and that you sent your son to take our place. Lord, help us to believe in the day that is coming. Help us to continually turn away from our sins. Help us to remember the cross. And Lord, help us to proclaim this day to others until you come. We pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.